Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're going to be talking about human information policy and consumer privacy in the face of surveillance technology. And we're joined remotely by a leading national and international privacy law expert, Neil Richards of Washington University in St. Louis. Neil, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me, Joel. Professor, maybe we can start things off with a quick definition. What do we mean by human information policy? It's a great question. So, so many of our technologies, so many of our business practices, so many of our government practices are running or manipulating human information. So this is just information about you, me, everybody we know. And I think given the the importance of human information to, to some of these practices, given the volume of human information that is being processed, given the, the consequences that this processing can have for us, everything from breaches and hacking to consumer and electoral manipulation or the revelation of our darkest secrets, I think it's worth thinking about these legal issues together in a group. Professor, is this an acknowledgement that our basic protections when it comes to the data we create needs to be updated or improved from the, the basic constitutional protections? Sure. I mean, so, so the Constitution doesn't talk about a right to privacy, as you know. Rights to privacy have been implied in a number of places. Justices have realized that that something like privacy or privacy itself is necessary to exercise our our First Amendment rights, our, our Third Amendment rights, our Fourth Amendment rights, our Fifth Amendment rights. I think we need to update this this regime in two respects. So the, the first respect is we need to make sure that as we interpret, as courts interpret this ancient language from the the 1780s, they're faithfully translating its protections against the government to a new digital environment. So. There were cases a few years ago, the Justice Department took the position that email was not paper. And so therefore, it wasn't entitled to protection under the Fourth Amendment. And the, the, the Sixth Circuit, and then ultimately, the, the Supreme Court ratified the decision a few years later, held that that's just nonsense, that, that an email is like a letter. And just because it's not made of paper doesn't mean the Fourth Amendment shouldn't apply. So we do run the risk if we don't continue to, to update, to, to continue to, to faithfully translate and interpret the Constitution, that these hard-won, critically important protections against the state are going to be left behind. As John Marshall said in McCulloch v. Maryland, we must never forget it is a Constitution we're expounding. And so I think too narrow of an attention to originalism can subvert, can undercut, can, can thwart the very protections that the Constitution was intended to create. So, so we need to engage in the process of updating and judging. Actually, the current Supreme Court has done a great job, to my mind, in this respect on the Fourth Amendment. So in cases like Jones and Riley and Carpenter, they've held that the Fourth Amendment continues to apply and continues to protect people. Since this is a, a talk on law, maybe we could do a quick 20-second reminder of some of the cases you mentioned. I guess first, the case involving email as paper versus some non-paper. What, what was the name of the case? So that was a case called Warshak v. United States. It, it's a, it's a, it was a lower court case. 
I don't know if you remember, there were those ads for a uh, natural male enhancement that used to run on cable about 15 years ago, where with smiling Bob, they go, this is Bob. And it would show that Bob was going through his day and was very, very happy. Anyway, if you remember those ads, that was the company. It was a company called Berkeley Nutraceuticals. And they were engaged in basically a credit card fraud scheme around herbal supplements that didn't work. But the case against them involved email. And the government took the position that it didn't need a warrant to get the email from the ISP. And Warshak maintained that the government did. And ultimately, in, in a, a case by Judge Boggs in the Sixth Circuit, the, the Sixth Circuit ruled that email is basically like a letter, like a phone call. If police want to get the contents of your communication, they have to go to a judge and get a warrant. And then you mentioned three other cases. If I'm remembering correctly, Jones involved putting a tracker on a car. Riley was something to do with reading your cell phone data. Maybe you can do a quick 20 seconds on those cases each. Absolutely. It's dangerous to ask a law professor to talk for 20 seconds about anything. So Jones is basically the facts of the TV show, The Wire. The police put a physical tracking device on the car of a drug dealer to try and locate the stash house. Uh, And the Supreme Court unanimously held that you have to get a warrant before you place an object on a car. The holding had to do with trespass theory, but there was a a majority of the court, including justice in the majority, who were willing to contemplate a broader reasonable expectation of privacy for non-trespass location tracking. That's Jones. Police have to get a warrant before they track your location with a device placed on your car. Riley involved drug dealers. It involved drug dealers, suspected gang members, What happened was a number of suspected gang members were arrested and police wanted to look at their phones to see if they could get incriminating evidence from their photos in their their phones. And the Supreme Court said because of the quantity and quality of information that is stored in a modern smartphone, that's different from, say, patting them down and seeing if they had photographs in their wallet. And so the Supreme Court said even if you have probable cause or justification or a warrant to arrest somebody, before you look in their phone incident to an arrest, you have to get a separate warrant. Then there's the Carpenter case, which is the most recent case from a few years ago. In that case, the Supreme Court picked up the issue that was left after Jones. What if they track your location without a physical trespass? So in that case, instead of placing a tracker on a car, the police went to the phone company and they got the location data from the phone. And the Supreme Court not 9-0 this time, but a majority of the Supreme Court still held because of the sensitive nature of location data. If police want to get above a certain amount of location information about you, they have to get a warrant, even if that information is held by a third party like a phone company. Well, that was the first prong. I, I suppose you could put that under reinterpreting the Bill of Rights for modern surveillance. What was the second? Right. So the Bill of Rights does a great job, particularly when it's interpreted in a faithful way, of dealing with government power. But government power isn't the only kind of power that can be problematic in our society. And it's not the only kind of problematic power that uses human information. So the Bill of Rights under the state action doctrine doesn't apply to private parties. So what we need to do is to develop a set of rules to deal with the power that private entities, corporations, and nonprofits and others have over people, particularly when it comes to using their human information. So we dealt with this problem before in the Industrial Revolution. We developed workplace safety rules and rules dealing with pure food, 
What we need to do is we need to update those industrial revolution rules for the information revolution and protect humans, protect consumers, as we've often called them, in the context of these relationships with powerful entities like technology platforms or software companies. And a good part of that is because the protections in the Constitution contemplated basically just the government as as the invader of privacy rather than, you know, private entities. Exactly. Right. Law is the story of law is in a very real sense, at least the good story of law is about restraining problematic exercises of power. And we've got a great set of tools for dealing with government power. That's what constitutional law is. We don't have as good a set of tools for dealing with problems of corporate power. And that's one of the real challenges that we face as we continue to, to update our legal rules so that they faithfully represent and, and helpfully deal with the problems of the 21st century rather than the problems of the 18th. We're going to be talking about consumer privacy. We're going to be talking about human information. And in the conversation, I'm going to make a couple of references to a book you recently wrote called Why Privacy Matters. And for those who uh, would like to learn more, it's published by Oxford Press. In that book, you have you set the stage a bit in this conversation on consumer protection with some, I want to say, qualms you have with vocabulary. Right. So, so th- this would be users, I, I suspect, right? Right. So when we're talking about politics, when we're talking about law, the words we use matter. They structure our thoughts. And I've been quite troubled by the tendency of many technology companies to use the word users to describe the people they have relationships with, the human beings who are engaged with their products. The only other industry, to my mind, that uses the word users to describe the the human beings they work with are, are drug dealers, right? And I think that's a pretty bad model for dealing with technology. You know, people talk about addictive tech. It may be a descriptive model, but I think we can do better than that. So technology companies consciously use this word. And why do they use it? Well, they use it to distance themselves from responsibility, to distance themselves from moral responsibility and from legal liability. A user is distant, right? You don't owe reciprocal obligations to a user. And so by doing that, they've consciously chosen to ignore All of the many words the English language and Anglo-American law have generated over the centuries to describe human beings in relationships. So they don't use guest or passenger or client or patient or friend. I noticed one word you didn't use to describe the relationship is is product. Product. Yeah, some people do say that uh, there's this meme that runs in internet space that if you're not the customer, you are the product. Nick Carr, the the digital theorist, once described the relationship we have to to Web 2.0 companies as as digital sharecropping, right? They own the land, we do the work, and they're entitled to the benefits of our behavior. But I think what matters is whatever word we use to describe the human beings here, we are in relationships with these technology companies. These relationships increasingly are coming to define our lives. And these relationships are characterized by power imbalances. And calling us users is, in a sense, a kind of utility heist or or surplus heist. Another word that you point to as 
perhaps critical in understanding this space is choice or perhaps the illusion of choice. Maybe we can talk through that. That plays quite uh, quite an important role in, in the legal interpretation and legal doctrines around privacy. Right. So very often companies describe their customers, their human customers, as users making choices. So uh, we have all of these privacy dashboards and privacy policies and this overwhelming onslaught of, of dense legal language and menus and submenus of little radio dials that we can tweak back and forth, suggesting that we have some, some choice over whether our information is being collected and, and how that information is being collected and how it's being used. And I think this is a really problematic way to describe what's actually happening. And it's a problematic basis on which to, to, to build our legal rules, because we haven't really chosen or consented to the collection of our information. We've been offered products. Sometimes these products we can, in a sense, choose to use, like a particular social network. But if all of our our friends and family are using that network, it's it's hard to discuss that as a choice. I think when it comes to things like learning management platforms for our, our kids in school, when we when when all of our children went to online learning during the, the COVID pandemic and lockdown in March 2020, we didn't choose whether our, our public or private school used Canvas or Blackboard or, or any one of the other sorts of platforms. So choice is important. Let me, let me be clear, right? But we don't really have meaningful choice. Again, the way we understand the word is being knowing and voluntary. So gold standard medical research, consent to medical treatment, waiver of a constitutional right, choice or consent. There are really three ways, I think, in which the choice we see in the digital space is defective. The first, that a lot of our choices are unwitting. When, when we're presented with this onslaught of dashboards and choices buried in the menus. And user agreements. It's incredibly frustrating that uh, you're bound by something that, that would require you to read a 50-page document updated with you know, what seems like quite a bit of regularity. Right. Our choice is unwitting. We don't know what's going on. We don't, we don't know what's in the legal document. First of all, even if you have the legal skills to read it, there's too many of them to read. And the language is always vague when it gets interesting. Right. So our choice can be unwitting as to the law. It can be unwitting as to the, how the technology works. And it can be unwitting as to some of the downstream consequences of the, of the information. Right? If, we, if we sign up for a genetic testing service, do we know what's likely to happen here? Do, do we know if, when and how? This is going to be shared with, with law enforcement or, or maybe long lost relatives that we might not want to be in touch with. So that's unwitting. Second, our choice can be coerced. If you only have one dominant search engine, you sort of have to take its privacy practice. If you only have uh, one internet service provider or um, right, there's one Twitter, um, and if you want to tweet, if you want to be involved in that kind of conversation, you have to take their choices the way they are take it or leave it. And I, I don't think it should be a choice not to use the internet as a precondition in modern life. In fact, the Supreme Court itself in the, the Riley and Carpenter cases said it's just not reasonable to expect people to not use a smartphone in order to, to, to protect their privacy. Professor, I don't know if you have children, but I can't imagine trying to have a conversation with a 17-year-old and telling them, I'm sorry, you can't use Instagram or you can't use TikTok because I don't like their terms of service. 
Yeah, I, I have a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old, and they both use Instagram. I think our conversations are, are maybe a little different in, in our house than in other people's houses. But but that's right. And, and you know, it should not be a choice not to use the internet. When, when the Trump administration rolled back the Obama administration's cable privacy rules in early 2017, Representative Jim Sensenbrenner said, ain't nobody got to use the internet, right? That's a choice. And that's just nonsense. And it's, it's nonsense that, that John Roberts has eloquently explained in, in, in Riley and in Carpenter. And third, choice could be incapacitated. You mentioned kids. My 15-year-old is not a legal adult, yet Instagram allows him to, to set things up and he's able to, to use these services. A lot of choices that are made by minors aren't legally binding, but have real consequences for them. And also, if you think of the the power imbalance between one consumer and a platform of millions or even billions, of course, it's not an even match. That's exactly right. Particularly when we talk about the additional power that the design and design of interfaces has over consumer choices. So if you ever try and delete an account, there's going to be two buttons, right? First of all, if you can find the button, it's frustrating. But if, if, if you get to the button and you, and you try and delete an account or do anything that the company doesn't really want you to do, but they may have to grudgingly give you the choice because of some legal or PR requirement, there's going to be a big button that says, no, no, I want to stay with the company. And then there's going to be a small button, maybe one we can't even hit with our mouse or our finger that says, no, I want to give up free offers. I want to say goodbye to all of my friends. So these technologies don't just leverage design. They also leverage what we know about human cognition through the science of behavioral economics, about status quo bias and the endowment effect, and all of the predictably irrational heuristics we use so that we ultimately make the choices they want us to make. Professor, one last uh, vocab term to touch on. You don't like, you don't seem to like the term innovation as it's used by some tech execs. Right, right. Uh, it, it seems that anytime a tech executive opens their mouth, they use the word innovation. And I've noticed that whenever you use, you see the word innovation written in a sentence, if you replace the word innovation with magic, it almost never changes the meaning of the sentence. So, so innovation completes this Orwellian trifecta of vocabulary, right? So we're not consumers engaged in a relationship with powerful companies. We are users making choices in an ecosystem of innovation. And so innovation has four problems. First of all, it's vague. We don't quite know what it means. Now, this is I want to distinguish the process of invention and making great things from the rhetorical use of innovation and innovation speak by technology companies. So when they're talking, we don't quite know what they mean other than that if there's regulation, innovation, this is another word they love to use, will be stifled. I would say, you know, for most of us, innovation feels good. Yeah, it's like a warm bath or, you know, a steaming mug of cocoa. But I think actually, you know, <laughs> when we get into the bath, we realize it's, it's got a leak or it's cold. So it's vague. Se second problem is it's selectively vague. When regulation comes along, innovation, which previously could solve all of our problems through the magic of technology, all of a sudden becomes, becomes timid. It becomes easily broken. It can be stifled. And so we never hear about the power of innovation and its, its ability to solve our problems when we're solving the problems according to legal constraints. 
So have a search engine, but don't do it through finely based surveillance advertising. Or have a social network, but don't do it in a way that emotionally scars a generation of teenagers. Innovation's vagueness makes it selective. So when regulation comes along, innovation apparently runs and hides, which is bizarre because we've got an older proverb from the industrial age, maybe even older, that necessity is the mother of invention. If innovation were so great, we should be able to get all of these things and meaningful consumer protection. And then finally, innovation is increasingly framed as a fundamental right. The companies talk about innovation as if they have a right to do it, that they should have a right to permissionless innovation. They should just get to you know, put all the laws out of the way and just build these wonderful technologies. And we did that for 20 years. And we have an internet that is rife with advertising and deception and political misinformation and polarization and discrimination. And it's not nearly as good as the internet that we were promised. But regardless, they they keep suggesting not only that this is like a fundamental right, but we see companies like Clearview AI and other companies in litigation arguing that any regulation of their ability to process human information is an infringement of their First Amendment rights. The idea that because the First Amendment protects a right to receive information, anything they do with data is insulated from regulation. If we take that argument seriously, and a couple of courts have started to, because everything we do in the information age, to a large extent, runs on human information, this would place the information revolution beyond the scope of regulation in exactly the same way, since this is a talk on law, that in the Industrial Revolution, conservative justices in the Lochner era used the liberty of contract and a a similar needlessly libertarian pro-corporate reading of the Constitution to forestall progressive regulation in the Industrial Age. And and I I worry that we, we risk repeating the mistakes of the past. If we treat innovation as this this magical, wonderful, constitutionally protected entity. We, we need to realize that we can have both new things and good things. And the key to that, I think, is, is a consumer protection law that treats consumers as they really are, rather than this, this fanciful and highly profitable character that has been created by technology companies of rational, choosy users making their choices in this atmosphere and this ecosystem of innovation. Now for a quick break. Our MCLE confirmation code for this interview is 032117. Again, that's 032117. Now back to the interview. Am I summarizing it properly to say that innovation, in insofar as invention, you're you're on board, but uh, beware of innovation that's actually uh, hiding exploitation. Absolutely, I, I love technology. This is why I do technology law, right? I mean, you know, my my bribe that my parents gave me when we moved from England to the United States in 1983 was a Commodore 64 computer, so I could play computer games. Wow, that's that's a museum piece now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But you know, I've been along on the on the technological right. I was one of the first people I knew to get a to get a web browser. I love technology. I love digital technology. But I think that 
somewhere along the way, we became detached from actually helping people live their lives better, right? Real innovation and corporate profits and self-interest have taken the reins. And what I think we need to do is we just need to have a, a sensible set of laws that treat consumers as they really are rather than under the model that makes technologists the most money so we can have all of these great things and we can use those technologies in ways we can trust, we can be protected, we can be not manipulated. In other words, all I'm asking is that the promises the technology marketing departments make are actually carried out in their products about the wonderfulness of these products. And I think ultimately, as we've discovered you know, throughout human history, we can't trust them on their own to do that when there's a moral hazard of making a lot of money. So we need reasonable laws to keep them within the rules of the game. So these technologies are actually as great and actually promote human flourishing as much as they, they claim they will. Well, why don't we dig a little deeper into, into the, the interaction of technology and people as they are. One thing you write about is the problem with treating humans as rational actors and how the legal interpretation of humans as rational actors uh, leads to problems. What do you mean by that? This is another area where we have this model in our law for, for how humans are that doesn't bear much relation to reality, but it's really good for business. And so this is the, the idea that, that humans are rational actors all the time, that we have perfect information, that we make rational choices that, that promote our self-interest. And, and who are companies or regulators to second-guess those choices? The problem is consumers, as companies well know, because they design their products this way, consumers, human beings, human minds are characterized by a set of heuristics and biases and ways that we are predictably irrational. We tend to value things that we have more than things we don't have just because of the, the status quo bias and the endowment effect. Psychologists know that human beings aren't rational all the time. Right? This, is, this has been proven by experimental evidence. And companies know that too. They, they know that we tend to value things that have a $1.99 price point as being closer to $1 than to $2 because our minds work that way. They, they round down in that respect. And so they can deploy these technologies in the design of interfaces, in the, the structuring of offers, in the way they write copy for ads to be persuasive and persuasive, not just because they're more persuasive, but persuasive because they take advantage of our known cognitive vulnerabilities. Why shouldn't they? If you know that selling a sugary beverage and putting a polar bear in the front of it makes it more likely to be sold and making the can red makes it more likely to be sold, uh, why wouldn't a rational company do that? A company that is not just rational, but is committed by the law to maximizing quarterly shareholder profits, not only would it do that, it has to do that. But two things are happening here. One, the law is actually forcing that choice. And two, it is forcing that choice without any regard for consumer welfare, right? So in a very real sense, you've just described the obesity epidemic. That's why we shouldn't, it shouldn't do it. And I think we should have legal rules that enable companies to make money. Absolutely. 
but that require competition that is reasonable, that doesn't subvert our vulnerabilities, that doesn't manipulate us based upon our predictable irrationalities. I think that's what the law should do. And it should realize that, and this goes back to choosy users, that we're not just islands. We're not just individuals sitting in our chairs making rational choices all the time. We're actual human beings, what I call in the book a situated consumer. We, We have limited rationality. We have limited reserves of attention. We have limited money, right? So I think it's important to think about how consumers really are. So when we're when we're making these choices between fizzy soft drinks with polar bears on, on the cover of the can and, and orange juice or maybe calorie-free sparkling beverages, consumers have a lot of things to do in addition to making those choices. So we've got jobs to go to and kids or elderly parents to transport to sports practices. We've got doctor's appointments. We've got to vote. We've got to plan travel. We've got to buy groceries. We've got to make meals. We've got to maintain our gardens, right? We've got to deal with open enrollment of our of our healthcare system. Talk to our friends, keep in touch, but still manage to exercise and get a good night's sleep, right? We have a lot to do. And placing these additional burdens on consumers is a lot. But But that's just the industrial age commitments, right? It doesn't include the information age tasks of reading and filing emails, reading the news, maintaining your home network security, backing up your photos, updating and checking your social media feeds, and watching all these ads before we can enjoy the marvels of the free internet. People complain that they are busy, that they are overwhelmed, they are overburdened. And that's because modern life and, and the incentives that have been placed on human beings have over leveraged the time and energy of most consumers, sometimes up to and beyond the breaking point, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Our law should meet consumers where they are, which is overworked, tired, distracted, busy, occasionally a little bit drunk, but not the homo economicus of neoclassical economic theory, even though that's much more profitable. But of course, the companies actually know that we're not rational because they design their products, they design their interfaces to take advantage of this. And I think that's unfair. And viewed from that light, we see a story of manipulation and exploitation of vulnerability. We see the exercise of power in ways that I think are unreasonable and illegitimate. But notice that's very different from the rhetoric of choosy users uh, making their choices in an ecosystem of innovation. This reminds me of, you know, I've personally run into something that I I find incredibly frustrating, which is on my iPhone, one of the apps will be showing a notification for no reason. And I can't get the notification to go away. And it, it forces me to keep opening that app to make sure that I've taken care of all the notifications. Right. It's not just taking care of notifications, right? And companies know this. Our minds constantly crave novelty. It's why we like sweet things. When the mail arrives, you know, packages come up that, oh, what's going to be inside the package? Notifications work like that. And they're deeply distracting. They're actually, there's some pretty good evidence. They're, They're corrosive of not just our ability to focus, but of our mental health, right? So we have these devices that have all these different software tools on them, each of them clamoring for our attention, like a basket of hungry puppies. But that's not 
the device is working for us, right? That That's not what we were promised when we installed an amusing or diverting game or a social networking app or an email service. We were promised that this would be good for us, that it would provide us pleasure, it would provide us human connection. But instead, we find ourselves like one of those old variety show plate spinners, right? Trying to make sure all of the plates are spinning and none of them crash to the ground. No wonder we feel so tired. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.